This is Physician to Physician Plant-Based Nutrition. I'm Tracy Cushing, an emergency medicine physician. I'm also a mom, a wife, four-time Ironman, and I've been plant-based for 11 years. And I'm Eden English. I'm an internal medicine physician, a hiker, a ski boarder, a mom, and I've been vegan for the last five years. We're passionate about helping other doctors learn the science behind plant-based eating so they can help their patients develop sustainable, healthy eating habits. Each episode, we're breaking down the science behind plant-based eating and answering the questions we know most doctors have and most patients ask. Hey, Eden. Hey, Tracy. I am so excited about this episode, talking about endocrinology with Dr. Basson, but let's start small. What did you have for dinner last night, Tracy? I had barley and vegetable soup with these gluten-free crackers all from Costco. Um, And it was all, it took less than five minutes and it was really very delicious and simple. Uh, I was feeling pretty lazy. How about you, Eden? You know, I've got this wonderful husband that cooks for me and he cooked an easy dinner last night. It was just a teriyaki sheet pan. So it's broccoli and snap peas and tofu all sort of roasted on a sheet pan. And then you cook the rice separately, mix it all with some homemade teriyaki sauce, which is actually really easy too. Um, And you've got a great meal really quickly. I would like your teriyaki sauce recipe because I have not yet made a teriyaki sauce that I find uh, replicates anything I can find in a restaurant. Um, But I will be sure to ask our guest, and she is also a culinary expert in addition to an endocrinologist. Dr. Sandy Basson is a first-year endocrinology fellow at the Icon School of Medicine and Mount Sinai in New York City. She attended Dartmouth Medical School and did her residency in internal medicine at Robert Wood Johnson in New Jersey, and she is from New Jersey natively, I just learned. She has a passion for nutrition, particularly plant-based diets and lifestyle medicine towards managing type 2 diabetes and obesity. She's published several papers regarding the current state of nutrition education within medical training, which I also love to talk about, the state of which is not very good. And she conducts culinary medicine sessions for patients, med students, and residents. Uh, during her training. She is currently working on manuscripts surrounding physical activity in type 2 diabetes and the impact of vegan diets on cardiovascular risk factors. She will be the upcoming American Association of Clinical Endocrinology Board of Directors Fellow in Training, and we are thrilled to have her here today. Welcome, Dr. Bassett. Thank you so much. I'm. This is a weird comment, but I'm sure you guys will relate. I'm very excited to talk about vegetables with you guys. <laughs> Why don't you start by telling us what you had for dinner last night? So I actually make this very easy tofu stir fry, similar to Eden's teriyaki tofu, but mine is more of a black pepper tofu. And I literally just cut up the tofu, throw it in the oven, and then I switch out the greens every week whenever I do it for one of my meals. So it's like broccoli, we got bok choy, we got green beans, switching it up. There is no specialty more related to what we eat than endocrinology or particularly diabetes, right? Um And so I would love to think that in your fellowship training, you were very well educated about the relationship between food and diabetes. So why don't you tell us about your experience or or how you came to be an expert in this area, if, uh, if not through your training? Yeah, definitely. Of course, um, you guys probably know this having gone through the medical training as well, but 
through multiple papers and my own experience, I it's really lacking. As doctors, you would think that we would be the ones who are taught about nutrition and talk to our patients about how to eat healthy, especially as an endocrinologist, diabetes, obesity, um, high cholesterol. Those are the big conditions that we see. And I got almost zero training in it. Everything that I've kind of learned has been myself being interested and looking further into it and looking for resources. I actually got interested in nutrition when I was in undergraduate. I grew up in a family where we were all vegetarian, but we did have dairy and egg products. But nobody really talked about nutrition. Like pizza was fine. Mozzarella sticks were fine. Overall, we were decently healthy. And in undergrad, I watched the documentary Fed Up which is basically about the obesity epidemic in the United States and the impact that food lobbying has on our health. And I just remember being so devastated at how much power and how much disregard for all of our future health was involved. And that's when I actually started to focus more on nutrition. I gave up soda because I never truly realized like how bad it is for you. And that's when I started to move towards becoming more plant-based. So that's when I got really involved and I thought, I'm going to go to medical school. It's going to be fine. I'm going to learn what happens. And then I get to medical school and there was nothing. So I was really lucky to be at a school where there was actually a nutritionist who was on staff within the medical medical school. And We actually had a pediatrician who was also a trained culinary chef. And so both of them kind of helped guide me, got me more involved in developing a nutrition um, education curriculum at Dartmouth and doing culinary medicine electives and really teaching me more just about how to eat healthy and how little a lot of people know about it. Do they have any sort of formal electives or training programs at the university now? So Dartmouth actually did. So I was involved with the first trial culinary medicine nutrition elective for um, medical students. And so, again, that pediatrician who is also a culinary medicine chef, a motivational kind of coach, and then a registered dietitian were the ones who led that. And we did like four sessions in a teaching kitchen where They kind of led us through how to make an easy meal like rainbow tacos and then uh, talk about the different nutrition aspects of it and how to explain this with patients. So it's it was amazing. And it really made me realize how much like hands on you have to be not necessarily just telling patients about it. But I actually had one patient who I was holding a sweet potato and they were asking what it was. And that made me realize, you know, we got to talk about how to read nutrition labels. We have to talk about these different vegetables and do like supermarket tours and really get involved if we're hoping to see these kind of lifestyle changes with patients. So how do you manage to bring that conversation into a 15-minute visit where you're reviewing an A1C and a bunch of other stuff? And, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard for everybody, but I think, you know, have you found any either like particular ways to sort of make that connection or any go-to methods that you use to try to connect with patients about what they eat? So I definitely have to say it's not easy. You're especially the way that our current medical system is set up, you know, you have 10 to 15 minutes really with a patient. And if someone's coming with an A1C of 12% instead of, you know, our goal of less than seven, It's hard to really talk about these lifestyle changes when you're really making these adjustments with their insulin or their GLP-1 or SGLT-2 inhibitors. 
And so one of the things that I recognize is that the patient and the doctor have to be involved. And if the patient's not really looking to make those changes, it's worth bringing it up, but it's not worth spending the entire visit because you don't really know how much of a change is going to happen. So a lot of times I'll kind of get a gauge an idea of how interested they are. And I have special smart phrases that I put kind of at the end of my visits as well, which gives them resources to places where they can find more about plant-based diets. So I love like Forks Over Knives and the American College of Lifestyle Medicine offer those resources. And it's actually really interesting because there was a study done on um, U.S. outpatient clinics, primary care, endocrinology, cardiology. And only about 30% of the outpatient visits even discuss lifestyle changes, things like exercise or diet. And so the just bringing up something like this is actually a really big deal. There was um, this one study that was looking in, this was done in Denmark, where they did like a one-year interventional lifestyle change um, evaluation on patients with type 2 diabetes. And what they, this was like a subset of that study that was basically looking to see if, um, what qualitative changes had happened for people to change their diet and be successful with this U-turn trial. And one of the big things was actually seeing the results of what they had done. So some of the patients were noting that their doctors on every visit would ask them an update for how their lifestyle change was going, if there was a goal that they had set that they were meeting, and then show them either their A1C or talk about how much they weighed last time versus this time. And seeing those results and them getting better really motivated them to continue. And so that, given with this kind of small amount of time, I try to gauge how interested they are, provide them with resources, and I always talk to a patient about how their trajectory is going, where their A1C is, how their weight has been doing, because if there are any changes, I kind of give them the chance to talk about those. And for patients who are more interested, we do spend a few minutes on plant-based diets or how to increase their exercise and lifestyle interventions. I love all that. And I... Some of the articles that we will we'll have links to everything we talk about in the show notes, but to your point of we have limited time um, and what should we be doing and using that time on, there's a lot of data out there now with the study with Bernard et al. and the study in the Journal of uh, Geriatric Cardiology that are showing that for people that go on these plant-based diets, they can actually reduce their A1C as much as a medication. That study actually compared the ADA diet to vegan diets. And vegan diets won. So plant-based diets do better than the ADA diet. So what's 15 minutes worth? How are we not telling every single diabetic that the best diet out there for you is a plant-based diet? And I completely get your point and I'm with you 100%. If they have no interest in changing diet, we shouldn't spend time there. But at what point do we start saying the best intervention for diabetes is diet and we should spend a whole 15 or 30 minutes discussing it? How do we how do we change that conversation in the US or do you think we should? Medications are great, but a lot of the times they're really just tackling one issue and in diabetes that tends to be the A1C and the overall blood glucose levels. But the men- the study you were mentioning by uh, Neil Barnard that was done in 2006, that was really one of the first studies that was done that showed the impact of like low fat vegan diets and how they can really help people. 
So in that study, the vegan diet was about 10% energy from fat, 15% from protein, and then 75% of these participants' diets was carbohydrates. So it was all vegetables, fruits, whole foods, uh, whole grains, and legumes. And this was a study with about 100 people. And the low-fat vegan diet, they weren't given the meal, but they were asked to avoid animal products, added fats, uh, added fats. And the ADA diet was about 15 to 20% protein instead of 15%, 60 to 70% of carbs instead of 75, and then less than 7% saturated fat. One of the interesting things in the study was that the ADA diet, they, those participants were actually also told to calorie restrict by about 500 to 1,000 calories of what they were eating previously. But the low-fat vegan diet did not have any calorie restrictions. So this study went on for about 22 weeks following these participants, and they saw multiple benefits. So it wasn't just the improvement in A1C, which if you um, take the group who didn't require any changes in their diabetes medicines, the A1C drop was 1.2% in the vegan group and then 0.38% in the ADA group. So the low-fat vegan diet made a much bigger difference in the A1C. And now compared with that, they also lost an average of 14 pounds compared to 7 pounds. They had an improvement in their cholesterol and LDL levels being 21% lower compared to 10% lower. And the urine albumin creatinine ratios also showed improvement by twice as much on the low-fat vegan diet. So you've got medications which are improving glycemic control. And then you've got a vegan diet that's tackling weight loss, hypertension, high cholesterol, urine, like protein damage from diabetes, and really reversing it. So I think that this paper in itself has such strong evidence that changing the lifestyle will make a huge difference in type 2 diabetes. And the medication, you know, you're bringing someone's A1C down, but with a changing your lifestyle in terms of a plant-based diet, you're actually reversing diabetes and that insulin resistance that we see. One thing I, I took away that I thought was interesting, it was only two-thirds and less than half of each group actually stuck to the diet that they were assigned. But what I thought was interesting that that was 67% of the vegans and only 44% of the ADA. So even those that were allowed to eat sort of other foods, because they were calorie restricted and probably fat restricted, they couldn't stick to it because it wasn't a reasonable goal for them. Whereas if you tell people, hey, you can eat as much as you want of these things, that's a much easier, right? We're not taking anything away from you. We're just kind of replacing what you're already eating with some different things, right? And that's a much easier uh, diet to swallow, if you will. Um, I, I feel like for a lot of people then, hey, you have to count your calories, cut your calories, leave these things out because then people feel deprived. They feel whether or not it's true, like they're hungrier and, um, and it's much harder to stick to, I think in the long term than, Hey, you know, eat as much fruit and vegetables as you like. Exactly. I totally agree. You know, here you're giving them this unrestricted thing and uh, otherwise you're, they're on this diet where this is the only kind of food that you can eat and nobody likes restrictions. I think one of the big things, especially if someone's interested in going plant-based, is ensuring that they're taking high-fiber and high-protein meals. Because a lot of times what I see is people think, oh, I'm going to go plant-based. Let me have a salad. 
And then they're starving because they're not actually giving themselves enough calories because that giant bowl of salad is equivalent to a tiny cube of cheese that they've been having before. So one of the big things that I also like to recommend if they're interested in this is go to Forks Over Knives and look at that sample menu and grab a can of chickpeas and legumes, which again, depending on how much you can tolerate, you have to kind of ease yourself into. Uh, A handful of nuts is a good idea just to kind of give yourself the calories that you're suddenly going to be dropping as well. Do patients ever come to you and say, hey, is there any way I could get off these drugs if I if I, is there any way I could get off these drugs? Basically like just, you know, hanging, like do people ever come that way or are there people open to that? Or is that not even really part of the conversation? I had so many patients who come saying, I don't want to take all these medications or there's too many. I can't keep taking more. But I think that it is important to let them know that changing your lifestyle and making these changes is also a lot of work. I actually had one patient who was admitted to the hospital. He was a fair, he was like a middle-aged man and he had come in with hypertriglyceride induced pancreatitis from his uncontrolled diabetes. So that was enough of a wake up call. I imagine this is how patients after a heart attack are to cardiologists where he was like, I need to get my diabetes under control. He came in with an A1C of 12%. His triglycerides were up at 9,000. You know, we did everything we had to while he's in the hospital and I saw him every day and, you know, he kept telling me I need to change. I need to fix this. I'm going to do it. So he was one of those people I printed out as much as I could and gave it to him and was like, we can make this work. And a month later, he comes to the clinic to see me. He's now off insulin because he was going hypoglycemic because he made it a thing where every single day he did at least 15,000 steps a day, which in New York City is easier because he basically took the stairs, he would walk his daughter to school, walk to the supermarket, like kept himself busy, completely cut out red meat from his diet, and half the amount amount of dairy that he was doing, as well as started introducing more fiber from fruits and vegetables. So he was someone, you know, like you can see these immediate changes and um, his A1C when I checked it a few months later had dropped down to 7.5, which is a huge change that medications would not truly be able to do. And, you know, he's already telling me I lost all this weight. Is this okay? And I'm sitting there like you're doing it, you know, you're working on these changes. But I think that you have to have that motivation. And if you have somebody who's not set up which for success, you know, they recognize the barriers, they're ready to plan ahead, they can have these goals that they think are attainable, it's not going to work out. So you really need to have that discussion with patients. And even if they say, I don't want to be on these medications, how much work are they willing to put in to make this happen? I think we have a lot of work to do as a society to make it easier for people to make the right choices, because we just have such terrible, like when you're traveling, when you're out, it's And, you know, I have all the resources and I give them to my patients too. Like, here's how you can do it with travel. But it is work. It takes planning. It's not, you can't just say, well, okay, I'm vegan now and go home because you'll end up eating a salad and starving to death. You have to plan how to get all the healthy calories in there. So it is work, but the medications are work too. They're expensive. They're side effects. They're all kinds of, and I prescribe medications all the time. They're wonderful. We do great things with science. We definitely need them. But if we could spend more time talking about plant-based diets and maybe a little bit less time talking about the side effects from the 18 medications you're taking because you're not plant-based, we could help patients get into a better space where they're spending their focus 
um, on doing the healthy things instead of spending their focus on how to obtain the next batch of medications that they need to treat all the conditions that are in some way caused by their diet. So how, how do we sort of refocus the bigger conversations? And speaking of that, like one of the things that sort of came up a lot in the, the journal geriatric cardiology article was talking about sort of reframing the conversation. So it's not just macros. It's not just, are you getting enough protein? It matters a huge amount where you get your protein. And hopefully it's not a shocker to anyone in our audience. It's better to get it from plants than animals. And this one showed it again, like no matter which kind. And I love that this one had poultry called out. You do better getting plant-based protein than even poultry. So it, even that's better. But it, it goes on to the other macros too. So fats, it's not just don't eat any fat. If you're going to eat fat, eat the unsaturated, not the saturated fat, which comes from plants, not animals. So trying to make those distinctions when you're talking to patients too is really important for me and sort of helps because patients are like, well, I don't eat carbs. So one thing I want to clarify while I've got the expert here, I mean, I'm internal medicine and I talk to my patients all the time about diet. But I hear from them a lot that they've been told by other providers that they really need to restrict carbs, especially things like fruit or even legumes, that these are things that diabetics just shouldn't eat. Or if they've been told like some fruits are okay, but definitely don't eat bananas because those are going to get you. Can you talk just a little bit about how it's more complicated than that? Yes, diabetes means your sugar is elevated, but it's elevated because of your insulin resistance. And we kind of need to look there maybe instead of just say, hey, it's all about how many bananas you eat. That's a great question and definitely a comment that a lot of people believe in. The truth is that type 2 diabetes is from excess fat. The insulin resistance that develops is because we're eating these foods that become um, basically stored as fat within our muscle cells, our liver cells, and our body isn't able to respond to insulin the way that it normally does. And what that means is then when we do have a high-carb meal, we're not able to process that sugar the way that we normally do. And so the issue is really this insulin resistance, which occurs from chronic inflammation and having these fatty foods. Plant-based diets, especially things like um, fresh fruits and vegetables, they have 64 times the amount of antioxidants compared to animal-based foods which fight off inflammatory markers like CRPs or IL-6, which are higher in animal-based foods compared to plant-based foods. And then on top of that, fiber, which is only found in plant-based foods, also is basically the food for the gut. The fiber gets broken down by the gut microbiome into the short-chain fatty acids that the intestines basically use to help keep them healthy. The healthier that we keep our intestinal cells, the better that it is at fighting off infection and decreasing this inflammation. Um, broccoli, for example, actually binds to these gut receptors called um, AH receptors, and it increases the immune response at the gut. It actually brings IgA to the intestinal walls, and so that helps decrease this inflammation. And that's part of the reason why having these plant-based diets helps you decrease that insulin resistance. And so now having that same banana, if you've been having a lot of high-fiber foods, a lot of these carbs, as they're called, they actually will have less of a sugar spike than if you had been um, you know, having a prior diet, a lot of uh, inflammation, IL-6, CRP, and then have that same banana. Wonderful. Thank you so much for explaining that in a way that 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 makes sense and hopefully makes sense to the other providers. And then 
we can explain it to our patients because I do try to have some version of that discussion with my patients a lot to to explain that unfortunately it's a little complicated. It's not just as simple as diabetes is sugar and so don't eat sugar. So I really appreciate you explaining it so well. We love the Adventist studies. We we talked about them in our, our general nutrition episode. And what I love about it is that it's not just once you have diabetes, it's good to change what you eat. It's if you change what you eat, you might not ever develop type 2 diabetes. And that's really powerful, right? Like all of these people didn't have diabetes to start with. And then those who ate the most, you know, fruits and veggies and and plant-based diet had the least likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes. And and in the U.S., that's just huge. I mean, I don't, there's no, there's nothing else we can do other than change what we're eating um, based on the trajectory of our, of our society and our health. So I love that this, these studies show that you can actually prevent the development of type 2 diabetes with your diet. It's pretty cool. And I do have a story back when I was in undergrad and I was working with one of my good friends who actually became an RDN. And um, the two of us were working on a, a basically developing nutrition sessions for eighth graders. And so what we did is, you know, set up one about sugar and one about fat and kind of just teach them a little bit about it. And one of the interactive sessions that we had, we had this big tub of sugar and we wanted them to take a tablespoon and put in how much sugar into this Coke can was there in a 20 ounce bottle. And, you know, the kids start, they put two and then I tell them to keep going. And we were basically getting up to eight or nine tablespoons of sugar and they all start screaming and they're like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe this. And that really made me realize because I didn't know either. But even when we're younger, no one tells us that so, like they'll say soda is bad for you. But do you really know what you're putting into your body? And even they recognize like it's not OK to be taking nine tablespoons of sugar in this bottle that I'm having. So true. And that helps because one of the other things we were just mentioning with the articles that you had was obesity, which is another big thing that endocrinologists talk about. And one of the things that I want to start with is a lot of these studies did carve out the difference because, and I love this about plant-based diets, we have to carve out the fact that plant-based diets make you thinner. So we have to separate the BMIs of different people so we can really get to whether the plant-based diet helps diabetes, because it's definitely going to make you thinner, which we know helps diabetes. So we have to do extra work to carve that out of our research studies to make sure that even if you stratify for BMI, the people on plant-based diets of the same BMI still do better with A1Cs. But there's tons of data that plant-based diets are probably the best answer for obesity, if not one of the best, or at least plant-forward diets. There's really, I don't think any question that plant-forward diets are the right answer with long-term, not only success in weight loss, Um, but weight maintenance of that loss and then outcomes across the board. We just talked about diabetes a lot. We've talked about cardiology a lot. You mentioned lipids, which is another huge outcome. I mean, people on plant-based diets have lower lipids than people not on plant-based diets, but the weight, I mean, say a few things there about obesity and how to prevent it or treat it. Yeah, that's huge. And uh, we were kind of touching upon it initially as well about the fact that with plant-based diets, you have unrestricted intake because you're truly never going to get to that high caloric amount that you would with more processed foods that you're feeling satiated even before you hit you hit that high calorie index. And so that already from there gives you an advantage in terms of weight loss. 
And the weight maintenance part is huge because people can go on these diets that help them lose the weight, but it's not sustainable enough where one, two years out, they've still lost that weight. And I think that's where plant-based diets really are key because it's such a sustainable way of doing things. It, of course, like we were mentioning, requires planning ahead and oftentimes making a lot more of the meals at home versus eating out. But you see that people have continued late weight loss and maintain weight loss moving forward. There was a Turner McGreevy and Neil Barnard study done in 2007 that looked not just at weight loss, but in one to two years later, where were these people who were having these low-fat vegan diets compared to what the National Cholesterol Education Program was basically stating to have in terms of eating? And after one year, people with the low-fat vegan diet lost about 11 pounds compared to the other group that lost four pounds. And then two years later, the vegan diet lost an additional four pounds, while with the people with the cholesterol education program diet, they didn't have any additional weight loss. So the benefits of going plant-based continue on even years afterwards. And just a quick question on that one and the Barnard study where the NCEP diet lost and the ADA diet lost. When those studies come out and they're like, you know, the current guidelines don't do nearly as well as this other diet. It takes a while to get those recommendations to actually change. Any thoughts on why or what's going on there? I think it's classic medicine. You know, even when a drug comes out that's working, it takes five to 10 years before it becomes commonplace and everybody starts using it. And I think that there is that fear of disruption where if we tell people to start going vegetarian and plant-based, is there going to be this huge uprising where people are going to say that they don't want this or this is voodoo, some kind of medicine that doesn't necessarily make sense. But personally, in my conversations with patients and bringing it up, nobody is scared or again, I'm in New York City where there's a lot more plant-based veganism that's kind of pushed and so, so many restaurants that have these accommodations for these kind of diets. But bringing it up, it's not like patients are aghast or taken aback saying, you know, every single meal has to be meat. But I do feel like sometimes there is resistance where they're like, I still want a little bit of meat. And we have to accommodate for that as well, but help move people on the spectrum to being more plant-based. And part of it also is our own, like, again, the house of medicine is not turning the page on this and is not leading the way with the benefits of, you know, sort of the food as medicine kind of movement. It's not coming from within the house of medicine. And so we are not educating ourselves and we're not leading by example for our patients either. And I think until we do that, it's going to be really hard to, to change the tide meaningfully. Um, and so, you know, to that point, right, to your fellow endocrinologists, like what, what do you want to get out there? What do you want to say to them? What's the message that you would have for someone who's never read any of these papers or doesn't know that you can modify diabetes with a plant-based diet? What do you think are the most important messages? I think there's a ton of evidence that shows that plant-based diets do improve diabetes it helps actually lower insulin resistance. So it's not just helping you when you're eating this food, but even if you have meat with another diet, the gut microbiome changes, the increase in fiber, making healthy colonic cells, that impacts um, the next meal that you have, where even if you do have meat, your sugars aren't spiking as high as they would otherwise. So there's a lot of evidence behind plant-based diets helping with weight loss, cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes. And then on top of that, if you choose to have a vice or 
you know, want to have that special treat, your sugars don't spike as high. So we have that evidence and it's okay not to necessarily know what to do, but helping find patients find the right resources. Forks Over Knives and American College of Lifestyle Medicine are, as well as the um, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, those are some of my favorite resources that not only help physicians, but also are great places for patients who are interested to start. And I think one of the other big things is even if we're not necessarily comfortable, even asking patients if they want to make a lifestyle goal um, or showing them that, you know, your A1C is getting better. And is there anything that you want to change in terms of your diet? Like giving up soda is huge for us, especially with the sugar spikes or trying to say, I'm not going to have dessert after dinner time and try to do like an apple with peanut butter or something like that. Those small changes will really make a difference and constantly asking patients about it, even if it's only a sentence that you say towards the end, does impact how they view themselves and their progress because it's a reminder that they can make these lifestyle changes. Dr. Basson, where can we find you in the world on social media? So I am on Twitter at Sandy Basson underscore MD, and I love posting about nutrition and plant-based diets. Wonderful. This is Tracy and Eden signing off. Less meat means less disease. Go have a happy plant-based day.